Are you ready to pontificate? All right. Uh, guys like me just got to pontificate, so... <laughs> So I'm constantly going, no, 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 stop that, put that down, don't touch that, take that out of your mouth. We have to deal with things as they are, not as we want them to be. The, the vendors are trying to find the problem space as the problem they can solve. All right, here we go. Today is Tuesday, January 6th, 2015. Holy cow. And this is episode 100 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry. How are you, sir? I am pretty good. Pretty good for this monumental episode. It is. Nice round number. Absolutely, but not, but not a power of two. So No. So really, we should celebrate it like 128. Absolutely. But we are, as we talked about, going to celebrate in grand fashion by doing exactly what we always do. That's true. We figured the best way to honor the previous 99 episodes was to basically do a normal episode. Absolutely. Speaking of which, Happy New Year. Oh, and Happy New Year to you and uh, uh, to all of our listeners, too. And I hope that everyone enjoyed Jerry's Twitter adventures. <laughs> and, and, and if I offended you, I, I apologize. Well, no, you don't. Probably not. Uh, so um, the first order of business, and by the way, I, I do want to say first up that um, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employer, some of who, some of us have a... Uh, much more recent employer than others. So congratulations. Yep. I started a new job yesterday. I got out of sales engineering, and I'm now doing um, principal security architecture work for a financial company here in town. So that's like processing mail? or Yeah. Yeah. I sort the mail into different floors, and then somebody else sorts them into the different mailboxes on the floors. Cool. Yeah. It's important. It's an important job. Did they let you touch the cart yet? Of course not. <laughs> Got to be like, there for a while. Yeah, that's like two years of apprenticeship before you even get to do that. Yeah, well, congratulations again. <laughs> so, uh, as I was saying, I do want to dispense with a a really ugly rumor that has hit the internet. Yeah. I was shocked, honestly. <clears throat> it it was was it really took me back. Uh, so so as you know, we've we've you know often pandered for iTunes ratings. And we absolutely appreciate everybody that gives us an iTunes rating. Thank you very much. However, with that said, there there is a recent, I will say questionable, comment posted. Uh, who, this person, Brian THO 20100, accuses me of having majored in English. That's pretty heavy. It, it is a little heavy. Um, I did tutor English. However, I did not major in English. Um, so, so there was that. I mean, that's that that really hurt. And then, and then the other one is that 
Bob is Jerry. I cannot believe that somebody would, would make that accusation. I've seen both Jerry and Bob in the flesh at the same time. Uh, cool. Well, I mean, there you, there you have it, right? What, what more is there to say? I mean, you know, the, the reality is I could never talk about the things that I do, right? right. I, I can only talk about the stories that Bob tells me. Yeah, so. that's true. I, you know, I may need to make a friend at work because my new job, I've got to be very, very careful about what I talk about. In my old job, I had plenty of customers. So if I was talking about a generic customer, you don't know who I'm talking about. Now, I only got one company I can uh, potentially talk about. That's right. So I may have to make a friend at work who tells me stories. There you go. All right. So having said that, we will uh, move into the news part of our story. Or our, our podcast here. So uh, first up is an article from Dark Reading. And uh, this article is titled, Long-Running Cyber Attacks Become the Norm. This is a pretty good article. I think we both made that comment. And uh, the, basically the point here is that it is becoming, you know, the, the smash and grab, kind of quick in, quick out kind of breaches are... Not as prominent as they used to be. And now what we're seeing a lot of are these really protracted breaches. And part of that is really because we've, as an industry, whether we like it or not, kind of at odds with what we say, we've become very centered on the perimeter. And we we are very focused on keeping the bad guys out and uh, not so much on what's happening inside the network or what's leaving our network. And so that's that's led to a scenario where people, once in, once attackers are in the network, it's difficult for them to be recognized and, and uh, identified and kicked off. So uh, I guess the point is that as a, as a industry, we need to do a better job of, you know, protecting the data. And I personally, I don't like that nomenclature because I think it uh, it conjures up things at least to me that create its own set of weaknesses so you know I will say even in the in the context of protecting the data you still have to be pretty careful uh, with how you're doing that but the point is you really need to stop focusing so narrowly on the perimeter so that's I think uh, what what this is, is really about. Yeah, I I would I would throw a bit of a nuance in there. I think perimeter can be useful if you're thinking of it as not only a defensive zone where you're keeping out the bad guys, but it's also your point to monitor for exfiltration of data. Absolutely. And, yeah, I think if we think of the the perimeter as a choke point of interesting data coming in and out, I think there are opportunities to instrument and monitor at the perimeter for exfiltration. You know, the concept of DLP, but perhaps a little more advanced than just straight-up DLP. Um, and because sometimes that stuff can be encrypted. and So it, 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 takes, it takes work. I mean, it, it definitely takes understanding what can be exfiltrated, how it can be exfiltrated, what methodologies are exfiltrating, watching for that anomalous behavior. Um, it's not easy. 
but I do think that that this in many ways to me tells me that the the prevention at the perimeter techniques are failing and and that's something we've echoed many times on the show and I really appreciate this article for really digging into that and saying look we've got to do a better job of watching internal lateral access internal uh you know indicators of compromise oh and also you know maybe take a look at what's getting exfiltrated out yeah and one of the one of the points I wanted to bring up back on the whole protecting the data bit I get hung up on this a lot when I uh when I talk about this the issue I often see is that the same controls that are used to protect, you know, quote, protect the data are often those controls that are you know, some of the first that are breached, right? So as an example, uh, if you are using some kind of Active Directory-based control policy to protect your data and you have an attacker in there who, who has gained, you know, domain admin credentials, uh, you know, you really aren't protecting the data. And, and so... You know, I, I'll say that you have to really think very carefully about how you design the controls such that they're kind of, you know, they're layered and not necessarily dependent on, you know, the, the, the ones below it or above it being um, fully intact. So that's, that's a really no. difficult thing to do. I think you make a great point. One, one that I like to layer on top of that is when people say their database is secure because the data is encrypted at rest in the database. And totally. <laughs> if the bad guy has basically subverted whatever sort of normal mechanism to attach and, and pull data from that database, it doesn't matter that's encrypted because the database will happily decrypt it as it's handing it out to the attacker. So that's right. you have to think about what that control is really protecting against and, and what, what it's meant to do. And, and for many, many, many attacks we've seen, the attackers are in essence, mimicking the behavior of a normal or privileged user. So if that normal or privileged user normally has access, the attacker is going to have access. Exactly. Um, So I I do think there is something useful about the concept of defend the data at the data point or, you know, care about the data more than the network environment. But I think that that is a very difficult problem to solve um, and, it, you know, it's, it's, we've been trying to solve with digital rights management for 20 years and have not done a very good job. So, but it's worth thinking about. Yeah, and I know there are, there are some technologies, which I, I, I would consider kind of niche, that will let you do much more granular kinds of access controls on, you know, how much data people can access at what rate and things like that. But... You know my my experience, and I know that the manufacturers of those products will vehemently disagree with me. But if you have a really large environment, that becomes a very difficult problem to scale out well. So, yeah, and I think a lot of folks have a lot of unstructured data in all sorts of exactly. areas in the organization that's really hard to track down and, and take control of easily. Right, especially for. A, a dynamic organization that's changing rapidly. And it's getting worse with the advent of cloud and various other easily launched services. We see over and over again these, in essence, shadow IT organizations popping up because it's so easy for folks to pop up these 
these various services and they don't have to go through the normal IT, normal change control. Therefore, nobody knows what data is out there. Therefore, how are you going to protect and control it? Exactly. And that is, uh, <clears throat> that is one of the, the big, I think, big challenges of our, of our time in IT right now. So what I have done as a solution in previous roles is the first person to do a shadow IT launch, I put their head on a pike out front of the building with a note. It, and it's a deterrent. It seems like it would be a deterrent. It's user education. Yeah. It falls under that budget. I, I like it. I like it. Yeah, we'll have to revisit that on our Halloween episode. <laughs> um, and and I, I will say that there is the token... Uh, mention of the kill chain model in this article, which I <laughs> your fa- one I, of your favorite terms. One of my favorite terms, absolutely. <laughs> Though it it has a valid point, right? If you can disrupt one of the steps in the process, and and I also like that they indicate something very key here that is a little nuanced, uh, which is that the types of controls where defenders place them uh, are fluid and dynamic and need to be able to change with different techniques and methods as the bad guys shift around to different uh, techniques. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point. And, uh, and probably one that I think is, is probably diff- more difficult the larger your organization becomes. And, and also another reason, uh, you know, I know we're kind of delving into network architecture, right? But one of the reasons I think that it makes sense to start consolidating many of the the ingress and egress points because, you know, doing, doing, being nimble, like they're recommending, becomes very difficult. If you're a large enterprise that has hundreds of, uh, you know, internet connections and things like that, it, it gets very difficult and unwieldy. I would agree. It's almost impossible to keep an eye on all that. So... Uh, anyhow, you know it's it, there's pros and cons, right? You gotta you've, you've got to do what's right for your organization, but at the same time, you know I, I think uh, what was it the Air Force or one of the branches of the military went through a really dramatic consolidation in the number of uh, of internet gateways they had, and it was some astronomical number, and they went down to like ten, and it made a lot of sense, you know, because of of really that kind of a model they were trying to get to where they wanted to have really mature and nimble ability to uh, to defend their what's coming in and going out so well something we've talked about a lot is if your environment is too complex it's very difficult to get your arms around it and manage it properly yep absolutely at least from a security perspective true enough so um so yeah we kicked that one in the teeth so the next story we have comes from Hot4security.com, which nothing says quality like <laughs> Hot4security.com. Why did I not register that domain? <laughs> I don't know. I wonder if .org is available. Could be. So uh, the title here is Top 10 Data Breaches of 2014 Lessons Learned for a Safer 2015. And uh, they, they kind of run through what they consider to be the top 10, which are eBay, J.P. Morgan Chase, Home Depot, Snapchat, Community Health Systems, Michaels, AOL. By the way, I didn't realize AOL. I, that was a new one to me. 
uh, Neiman Marcus and you- yeah, I, I remember it. It went around because everybody made jokes. People were still using AOL. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> it was that's right. You know, it, it didn't get a lot of traction in the in the press. Yep, uh, and then uh, Sony Pictures. So that was that rounded out the ten, and uh, you know they they give some commentary, which some of it's good, some of it's not so great. But uh, they did summarize what they saw as the recommendations, which are to regularly assess the risks and vulnerabilities of your systems, to keep your operating systems and endpoint security programs up to date, secure pause devices against software and hardware manipulation, and use intrusion detection software to detect abnormal behavior on the network, which is pretty basic stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things, and we, we'll, we're going to talk about it a little bit, that we don't see a lot is like minimizing the amount of data that you have. You know, I don't see that being talked about a lot. In, in what respect? Do you need to have, when we get to, uh, oh, well, hell, let's just go. It's episode 100, right? All the rules are gone. All the rules are gone. So <laughs> one of the next stories we're going to talk about is an update to the U.S. Postal Service breach. And, uh, you know, if you recall there, there weren't a lot of details, except that there were the, uh, there were, uh, there was information about 800,000 employees stolen. Well, what's since come to light in their investigation was that some undetermined number of medical records in the form of uh, disability, or I guess it's workers' comp claims, going back to 1980 were stolen. And I guess my point is, do you really need online, you know, 30 years or 35 years of data? That's, yeah, that's a good question. Uh I guess it all come down to what sort of internal SLA you have to be able to analyze and, and react to that data. But, yeah, most organizations would have archived that off to long-term storage of some variety. I can understand keeping it if there was some sort of lawsuit or issue like that that you needed to be able to go back and, and reference it. But why wouldn't they archive that off to tape and put it in Iron Mountain or something? Hard to say. I mean, maybe they have a need. I don't know, but... I, I, I'm having trouble wrapping my my mind around it. I'm trying to understand. So if they've got claims back from 1980, either they've got a really old mainframe or they've been somehow doing conversions and updates of that data to make it compatible with new formats. I'm going to go with the former. <laughs> which, That's which, crazy. Which is itself concerning. Um, you know, although um, the way they... The way they characterize that, by the way, is they, they, let's see, the file hacked contained injury compensation claims dating as far back as November 1980, which kind of leads me to believe it was probably an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, that's my gut. That's what it sounds like to me, too. Who knows? Maybe somebody was doing some sort of research study or data analysis. Yeah. But yeah. but I guess the the reason I brought it up is we see lots of recommendations like you know keep your antivirus updated and use intrusion detection and 
keep your software patched and, and whatnot, but I don't often see recommendations of considering whether or not you need all that data online and available. That's I mean, a if good it's, point. If it's not accessible to attackers, they can't steal it. My gut is that we struggle so much with the basics. That's a fairly mature sort of mindset. That's my initial reaction. I mean, we clearly we didn't talk about this before the show, and I did not prep any sort of commentary. So um, I'm just you know I'll do it live. Damn it! It's episode 100. That's right. All the rules are gone. Uh, anything could happen. So it's a good point, though, and and I think many organizations struggle with this as a basic, fundamental concept of creation, archiving, destruction, managing of data. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of organizations have regulatory issues around that, how long you need to keep things. But um, those are usually around minimums. You know, rarely do you see things that specify a maximum. Yeah. So. Anyhow, I think it's just something to, to to throw into the hopper to consider, right? Not, yeah. Back in the day, we used to debate the concept of email retention policies. Yeah, I think we talked about that a couple of episodes ago. Yeah, I, I think with disk space getting cheaper, that's kind of gone by the wayside. But you know, some of the concepts behind that were, you know, if it's not documented, you can't get sued over it, kind of thing. But <laughs> exactly, hmm. exactly. All right, so. So yeah, moving on to our next story, which comes from HelpNet Security, and uh, this title is Number of Cyber Attacks on Retailers Drops by Half. And which is a shocking statistic. Well, it is kind of. This I is mean, like shark attack stories in Florida. Uh, okay, so... Well, no, what I mean by that is the perception is... Retail attacks are up because of all the big breaches we keep talking about. Well, but but let me let me uh, okay I'll let me quick. pontificate for a second. Please do. Okay, so when they say that retail attacks are down by fifty percent, what they're talking about is for the period of Black Friday through Cyber Monday, as compared to previous years. Yes. Okay. And and they and so they 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 point out that. Um, let's see, I'm trying to find it. Uh, attackers secured more than 61 million records in 2014, down from almost 73 million in 2013. However, when the data is narrowed down to only incidents involving less than 10 million records, which excludes the top two attacks over this time frame, Target and Home Depot, the data shows a different story. The number of retail records compromised in 2014 increased by more than 43% over 2013. Interesting. So, I I mean, I, I got to tell you, the headline is crap. <laughs> so, what you're really saying is that there was more, just not during yeah, Black Friday. To- correct. So, a whole lot more. So what we've learned here is that hackers are busy off shopping for, for Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Or is it, is it possible, just to slice these numbers a little bit, that organizations are a little better about defending and aware of these things around the holidays? Maybe. You know, I have another theory, too, which is another wild and crazy one. So 
so follow me for a second, right? What are these guys after? They're after credit cards, right? In the U.S., primarily because we use MagStripe and Signature, and, you know, it's all lame and whatever. One of the things that we know is it it's difficult to sell, you know, mass quantities of stolen credit cards. And I wonder if that is kind of a rate-limiting function on really large breaches. And, and also, uh, there's a lot of, I suspect, I don't know, there's probably a lot of additional anti-fraud stuff going on over that period. And and I would I will also say that we may not yet know whether or not you know there was major breaches going on during that that uh you know that time frame because a lot of times we don't know. I mean it we, we won't find we might not find out until February that you know some you know some dozen retailers were breached. You know that some of these things takes a while to to come out. So, you know. Anyway, so you're saying fundamentally, all the data might be bunk. Basically. <laughs> well, it did have some interesting stuff in the in the methods. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, they they did uh, they did point out that while we've talked a lot about the point of sale malware attacks most of what they are claiming uh, is attack vectors on retailers is SQL injection which you know I, which kind of says to me that the majority of these are probably happening to online retailers right because command injection SQL injection we're expecting against some sort of internet facing website right and uh, I, I got to tell you, I can't remember the last online retailer breach. I just, I'm having trouble with this, to be honest with you. Because we hear over and over again that phishing is the initiator of a lot of these episodes. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering where, and maybe I should go read the original study. I'm wondering if the command injection or SQL injection I'm talking about is the original exploitation point or is used somewhere in the process of the attack. That's a good point. Because they, 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 you know, the things they rank here, uh, and I'll just read these, command injection, failed login attempts, login to disabled account, malicious website, shell shock attack, SSH brute force, suspicious SQL injection, unauthorized as- access, and Volscan. I'm not seeing phishing at all in here. <laughs> no, which is kind of conspicuously missing, isn't it? Yeah, so I, I think I need to go and read the original report if they publish it and f- figure out what sort of methodology they're using to talk about this uh, because it just doesn't seem valid as the initial point of compromise. Well, we'll, uh, yeah, well, I guess we'll have to revisit that after some further research. So, our next story, we will skip over. Uh, well, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll mention it. HealthcareITnews.com was the source for the update on the U.S. Postal Service breach. Um, there was a couple of interesting little tidbits in here. There's a a group called Javelin, which apparently thinks a lot about these kinds of PHI breaches, and they point out that based on some other breaches they've looked at, 
they uh, they estimate that most uh, we'll see there was a one in four chance if your PHI if you had PHI stolen on you you had a one in four chance of fraud being uh, levied against you I guess uh, that was as of 2012 uh, and they also say that there are, it takes about 20 hours per fraud case to resolve and uh, you know so if you have hundreds of thousands of records stolen that you can see how that quickly becomes a, a pretty expensive and timely endeavor so uh, i thought that was uh, some interesting numbers but, indeed but moving on to our next story this one comes from databreachtoday.com the title is breach prevention five lessons learned so the, the first lesson is manage threats from the top down. And, uh, I, you know, when I first read that, I my eyes started to roll back. And, <laughs> and, uh, and they, they, they didn't go where I thought they were going to go. But basically, um, they pointed out that a lot of, or at least they are proposing, that a lot of organizations are taking note of what Home Depot and Target did in the wake of their breach with a pretty significant reorganization of their executive teams. And so they're, they're proposing that organizations really ought to think long and hard about how they should structure their executive team to best support, you know, the, the secure data security of their, their enterprise. So things like, you know, having risk management report directly to the CEO, that sort of stuff. So, anyhow, interesting uh, point. Number two was ramp up employee training. And um, debatable, but okay. Yeah. So this one comes up quite a quite a lot, and they interview this person named Michael Michael Broomer, I guess is how you say it from. Experian Data Breach Resolution. And he says that in 2014, they serviced over 3,100 data breach incidents. And about 80% of those had as the root cause employee negligence. And uh, the number one cause was compromised administrative credentials, which we've talked a lot about. Um, so I, I think that is the result of phishing and, uh, and probably drive-by downloads and things like that. I guess the question I have is, is employee training truly an effective mechanism for combating that, or do you need better technical controls around that? Well, that, that's where my head went. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think there is some value in training. Yeah. It, yes, Absolutely. But I think you have to have it. You have to have the right frame of mind about what you can uh, you can reasonably expect to get out of training. Um, and, and you know, if, so if you have, let's say, you have an organization with you know thousands of people, and you have uh, you know you've got twenty percent of them clicking on you know, the, you know the Amex receipt attachments and the UPS shipment notices and things like that and they're constantly getting crypto lacquered and and whatever and you're spending a ton of money 
in responding to these stupid things, if you can cut that down from 20% to 15%, you can save yourself some money. You can you can improve worker efficiency and things like that. But you have to be cognizant that you aren't really materially changing the risk landscape from the perspective of a big data breach. You know, if you're if you're being targeted by and not, not even I'm not even talking, you know, APT nation state crap. I'm talking about you know, like what happened to Target or or that sort of fair, you know, where it, somebody's intentionally trying to get into your specific environment. Training, I don't think, is very effective in that in that kind of context. I do think that when I read this, the thing it says to me is if people's administrative credentials are being stolen in social engineering attacks, you have a problem. And it's not a training problem. It is a operational problem. People should not be checking their freaking email or browsing <laughs> the web using administrative credentials. Period. End of story. And I, I don't disagree, but well, people do it. Well, they do, and apparently 80% of 3,100 breaches this company involved, was involved in uh, happened as a result of that. So, Indeed. Number three was monitor third parties, and they point out that Home Depot and Target were, were uh, compromised through third parties. This is a difficult one, right? And, and I think what, what they basically say is uh, every organization contracting any type of entity to do work for them that has access to their information assets need to ensure the entity has an effective information security controls in place. And I want to stop it there because I think that's possibly the wrong way to look at it. I I really think that you need to treat those third parties as likely hostile entities. You need to, you need to do what you can to limit their ability to impact you. I 100% agree with that statement. Yeah. I mean, you've got to open it up to the minimum level necessary for them to do whatever it is they're trying to do, but I would consider them hostile. You know, if, if, if you, I mean, it, it, it's at some, at some level, right, you, the average company has dozens, hundreds, sometimes thousands of vendors. There is only so much due diligence you can do with them, and you are often forced down to the spreadsheet level you know, control. Do you use antivirus? Yes, I do. We have malware bytes on our computers, and you know, and then you have Target. You, you know, I, I really think it. Anyway, I already said it. Treat your third parties as hostile. Agreed. And Not saying according. you shouldn't do due diligence with them to ask and demand that they have good infosec. That'll all help, but you can't trust it. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Number four, establish procedures for security updates. And they, they go on to point out the J.P. Morgan breach and how J.P. Morgan was breached because they, the security team overlooked upgrading a two-factor authentication control on a server, which last week I called BS on. Go back and listen to that one if you're, if you're interested. Um... Yeah. This kind of goes back to inventory management. 
right? And I've again, I've had some interesting discussions with people recently about is that the right way to go? And I'll say maybe it isn't the best way to go about it. However, given the way contemporary IT infrastructure and security controls are designed, you have to be able to know what's on your network and make sure it's up to date and whose it is, what it's doing, and all those all those key questions. So, you know, if you don't have a good inventory, you don't know, you, you can't be sure that you're updating everything. It's that simple. And I, I would imagine that's probably what what led to this two-factor issue. Indeed. Uh, and then number five, schedule frequent penetration tests. Which, you know, I, I've come out in the past as a fan of penetration tests, but, you know, they're not a panacea, right? You know, they are a point-in-time snapshot of your, you know, of, of what that particular penetration testing company can find. And a lot of times they will find things. You know, the question is always, did they find everything? And usually the answer is either we don't know or probably not. So uh, I do think it's a, it's worthwhile to do. Uh, I I fear, and I see this happening in the industry, and I've in the past called it the pen test puppy mill, right? Where we... We see uh, pen testing is where it's sexy, right? It's where everybody wants to go. All the all the college kids coming out want to go and and jump into pen testing. That's that's where they want to go. So they go get their some certification and and off they go. And hey, that's that's great, right? But at the end of the day, if you as a company are relying on that you know, that organization, that person to reasonably find things or find ways to get in and uh, and they're not maybe as competent as they should be you might have a false sense of security yeah i would agree i i like pen tests but you know there's a lot of value in doing third-party security audits and program review and gap analysis and many other services that can look at not just can we break in but all right let's do a you know, a white box review of how you're architected and set up and what assumptions do you have and how are you constructed to prevent certain attacks. And, you know, let's let's take a holistic view of what it is you're doing from a third-party standpoint. People who don't have the vested, well, you know, we've always done it this way because X, Y, Z. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing I'll say is I think it pays to... Number one, look for competent pen testers, as I've already mentioned. But two, probably rotate them, right? You know, oh, so yeah. if you make this if you make this a program, put put a couple different companies in the in rotation, and uh, or, or at the very least, try to get different testers on each engagement. So, um, so anyhow, the last uh, last story we have comes from securityweek.com and the title is Morgan Stanley fires employee for stealing client data. It's a little bit of an obtuse uh, story here, but apparently the uh, the account information for 900 clients uh, 
ended up on the internet. And upon investigation, apparently those 900 were part of a uh, a group of 350,000 records that were stolen, which actually amounts to 10% of Morgan Stanley's client base. Uh, so this this uh, unnamed employee um, apparently stole 350,000 records. Yeah, and my understanding is that he was attempting to sell them. Yeah. I also find it interesting that they didn't detect this until it was publicly posted on the internet. Yes. Yes. And then they had some ability to do enough forensics to get the entire number, but they lacked the capability of seeing this initial exfiltration of this data. Yeah. This is a this is a difficult thing, right? Because if you, you know, when you're when you're talking about insiders, you know, it's not necessarily that you're looking for things flying out your internet connection. It could just as easily be a flash drive or, you know, an Excel spreadsheet uploaded to your phone. I mean, there's many, many, many ways to do it. Um, boy, there aren't a lot of details on exactly how it was done, and they may not know how specifically it was done. But, um, you know, this is this is one of those nightmare scenarios where you've got essentially a trusted employee who has access to your really sensitive data, and they they violate that trust. So, yep. Um, I know a lot of companies are are wrestling with that, and I you know I will say, and I've talked about this in the past. You know, think about it with a clear head, right? I, I see a lot of organizations thinking about this in terms of. Well, you know, how do we keep it out of the hands of contractors? And, you know, and we have to, I think we have to come to terms with the fact that not everybody's loyalties are all that strong to their employer, even if they're not a contractor. You know, especially if you've got something that's worth a lot of money, you know, think think that through and design some controls that that are suitable for the risk. So, and I don't, I don't necessarily have some great suggestions for Morgan Stanley, but. (laughs) Well, yeah, I agree. I don't think there's any sort of special risk because they're contractors over insiders. It was a very odd delineation people made after, you know, after the breach of, you know, it was Snowden of, oh, the contractors are evil. Well, why don't we look at the fact that all insiders could do this? Exactly. Exactly, and I, I think that that's still echoing through the halls of, uh, of corporate America, at least. Uh, I don't know about other countries. So, um, so anyway, that was episode one hundred. I do have one other quick thing. Oh, go ahead. Just a quick, quick Sony update. Yes. Uh, the U.S. in retaliation over the Sony hack, because clearly it was North Korea. Could be no other. And by the way, if this is your first time listening to the show, I have come out staunchly stating I do not believe that there's North Korea behind the Sony hack. So, but uh, the U.S. administration disagrees with me. That's not the first time, nor the last. And as a result, has slapped sanctions on North Korea, uh, specifically 10 individuals involved in arms sales overseas. So, because of the Sony hack... 
there are now some basically meaningless sanctions being put upon 10 people involved in the state-owned arms exportation in North Korea. I'm not <clears throat> I'm not exactly sure those are meaningless sanctions. You know that that's that's a difficult I, thing, I should right? I should say largely symbolic. I don't know okay, how Okay, that's fair. Yeah. I, yeah. That's probably a safer my, more appropriate term. My understanding is, is that you know the, about the only thing North Korea has going is arms exports. True, but those folks who are going to buy those arms are not really going to care if we don't like it. Well, you know, the the U.S. has some interesting things going. So if you are a company that does business, uh, you know, basically, long story short, um, you when you, when the U.S. embargoes somebody like that, it tends to go a couple layers out, right? So it's, it, you know, if, if it's a German company, I'm just making it up, right, that, that also wants to do business with the U.S., they, they can't do business with, you know, that North Korea company and with the U.S. So it's, you know, whether or not it's really going to do anything, hard to say. Uh, obviously, they, the, the Supreme Leader came out and called our president a monkey, which was really, really very offensive. Um, you know, I, w- I was thinking about that, and I, I don't disagree that's offensive, but I was curious if in the North Korean culture and language it's considered racist. I had had a similar thought, I, yeah. and I don't know. Um, Not that it really changed anything. It just was a random musing I had. Well, in, in, uh, I think in, in the context, I don't remember the exact quote, but he said something about... Um, a monkey in the jungle, and it it, it was, uh, you know, obviously in in our culture, it was clearly highly offensive. But I do wonder, you know, from their perspective, if if it had r- the racial connotations that that it was, you know, that we yeah. interpreted it as having. So I don't know, but um, but clearly they're not happy right. with us. But you know, I, I I do wonder, is it all like fake? You know, fake outrage. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, are we do we have fake outrage at them, and they have <laughs> fake outrage at us? I mean, this is just such a BS thing. And and you know, the other thing I wanted to mention too is we talk about oh, you know, st- how stupid is attribution? But here's a case where conceivably, if it wasn't North Korea, holy cow! I yeah, mean, no that kidding. changed foreign policy relatively significantly based on some attribution of a of a online attack yeah we basically if if they're wrong and they know they're wrong they've basically used this as a false flag yes the other thing that i want to point out on the sony topic is somebody posted to uh, pastebin, a message supposedly from the Guardians of Peace, the group oh. behind North Korea, uh, sorry, behind the Sony hack, uh, turned out not to be Guardians of Peace at all. Just a guy playing around, having fun. Uh, which goes to show you, uh, how exactly are you authenticating these so-called threats and messages from the so-called cyber terrorists? Uh, absolutely. And, and you know, we, we saw that with in, in spades with mm-hmm. Anonymous. 
you know, because for a long time, you know, anonymous, I guess, intrinsically is decentralized, right? And so anybody could, you know, anybody could, could do it, right? But one of the problems there is the message gets kind of diluted. Anybody can slap their name and their cause on, you know, with an anonymous banner and bing, bang, boom. Oh, now anonymous hates, uh, you know, Cheerios, you know, whatever, right? right. They, they can do whatever they want. Anybody could be anonymous, and just like what you just mentioned, anybody can be the the GOP making threats. Here, give us the wolf to, <laughs> to CNN, which was which was the threat. That was absolutely hilarious, and I think it was it wasn't he a journalist, the person uh, that that posted that. I don't recall. Possibly. And uh, yeah, as I understand it, he spent some quality time over New Year's with the FBI. <laughs> who, who, by the way, based on that pastebin post, issued a uh, and I this is this is hearsay, so you know, be forewarned. Allegedly, posted some kind of an alert that uh, you know that the GOP was making threats against a U.S. media outlet. Jeez. Ah. So again, kids, if you are going to start up a you know some kind of new hacking collector publish your damn pgp key seriously and 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 sign your stuff i mean this is crazy don't make us guess but then again that's kind of the point isn't it right? i mean it's, it's a, that's a great it's a great thing when you're the gop cuz you know that anybody can run around and create more havoc for you yep so so anyway now now that is episode 100 <laughs> indeed it was we broke all those rules so uh yeah so uh, maybe we'll do something even more special or regular for episode 128 i think it's a good plan absolutely so uh anyway anyhow so for all those people that have hung out with us for a hundred episodes, we really appreciate your time and patience with us. And uh, um, again, if you have any comments or questions or ideas, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. If you like the podcast, you know, leave us uh, leave us some feedback on iTunes. But you know, I'm not Bob. I, I don't know how else to say it. My name is not Bob. My name is Jerry. Andy has gone on record and said he's seen both me and Bob at the same time. It's true. What more can you say? What more is there to say? Mm. So, anyhow, uh, with that, I bid you adieu. Merry, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, whatever other uh, holidays you might have celebrated. Hope, uh, hope you had a good, good holiday season. And uh, with that, we'll talk again next week. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening, always. Take care. Bye.